Monica, thank you so much for reminding us that God is involved in the darkest places. And he's not only involved in the darkest places, God is involved in the darkest places transformatively. And thank you for reminding us, Monica, that when Jesus gets a hold of our lives, we don't stay the same. We're transformed, and we do something. That's what we've been talking about for several weeks, faith that works. You know, one of, not one of, the primary vehicle that God uses transformatively in our lives. Let's say it differently. Let's say the foundational vehicle that God uses transformatively in our lives. So, honestly, that was awesome. We're going to have a panel up here in a minute and talk through, we're just going to end our series in James, Faith That Works, with the group of men that have preached this summer, answering some of the questions that you sent in and some that we had for one another. So today will be a little different, but right now, actually, in the midst of all this incredible stuff, right now is the, if you miss everything, don't miss this moment. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. The foundational vehicle for God's transformative power in our lives is His Word. A Word that's been passed down to us through generations of faithfulness. And if you don't know the habit of spending time in His Word, or those of you who have gotten away from it, because we believe that th- this is literally God's Word for us. And if you don't know the habit of being involved with this, of studying it, of meditating on it, and as Sandy will demonstrate for us, of memorizing it even. It is literally transformative. It will rock you. And when God does what he did for Monica and gives you the eyes of faith and lets you see this, I can't explain it to you except it can be utterly transformative. Now, Sandy, you have been in the habit of memorizing Scripture for many years. So, why? How does this benefit you? Well, I started because my parents paid me. (laughs) Um, So, first of all, it benefited you in cash. Exactly. But God's Word will benefit you in spite of yourself. I really believe that. I think James was the very first book that I memorized, and our whole family did it. This was before I started keeping records, because I kept records because I got paid. (laughs) But when they started, it was more freeform, and I know both my mom and my dad were uh, memorizing James, and they made tapes and were listening to him, and it was something for the whole family that we tried to do. Anyway, eventually I kept uh, memorizing more because it was a lot better than cleaning my room. (laughs) (laughs) And it got into my heart. So that's the reason I bring it up is I really think that memorizing scripture gets it into your heart. And I found even when I was a kid that when the pastor would preach on something I memorized, it'd be like, ooh, that's my passage. And even now, you know, when Ed says we're doing a series on James, I'm like, oh, if you're going to read it anyway, can I recite it? Uh, Just because it's gotten into my heart. Uh, Okay, so, Sandy, why don't you start for us, and I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, to recite James 1. So, can you do the first chapter of James for us? 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, and the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Sandy, that's awesome. You know, when you had a hitch, you skipped a paragraph. Don't be deceived, yeah. my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from yeah, above. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I just wanted to point that out to you so it wouldn't be completely embarrassing. <laughs> How much of this you've actually memorized is incredible. <laughs> so any tips? You have memorized the book of James. Some of us would like to memorize a phrase. So are there tips for us? Well, that's the thing is... A lot of people are like, oh, you know, I didn't want to get up here and say, look, this is so great. I memorized all this. I want to say any time you spend on this will be rewarded inside. And one of my tips is don't memorize by amount. Don't say, oh, I'm going to memorize James this summer. I memorize by time. That's um, really good. Yeah, I spend 10 minutes a day. Now, when I was getting paid for it, I spent an hour a day. I'm not going to pay any of you. I'm just. 
And so that's how I got so much memorized. I mean, you know, I was getting paid for it. But now that I'm an adult... And you I just devote a certain time, amount of time. Yeah, I spend 10 minutes a day, and I normally, that's whatever passage I'm memorizing is where I have my quiet time, and I figure if it always takes me longer than I think it will, and I figure if I don't get a passage right that God wants me in that passage a little longer. You can't fail. If you're just spending time, I mean, you can miss a day, but you won't be like, I didn't finish it in this much time. Well, that's because God wanted me to keep thinking about it. Okay, awesome. (laughs) And then the other tip is, it's kind of two tips in one. It's let it go and review. And this I stumbled on because of my parents' method of pain. The first time I said a chapter, I could get 10 cents a verse but I could review a month later for five cents a verse. And it turns out that that was the way to make the money. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) It's all of that. It's mercenary. (laughs) Yes, yes. But what I learned was the second time I would recite a chapter, it was almost as hard as the first time. So you could say, yeah, I've memorized this, but... You wouldn't know it the second time. The third time, it's a little easier. By about the fifth time, it's in you. You know, you remember it. I looked at my records for James. The last time I memorized James was in 1996. But, I mean, it still took a while, like 10 minutes a day. But it was way easier than Mm. uh, anything new. Oh, I also wanted to say about James is that's a really good place to start because it's so conversational. Mm -hmm. So anyway, anybody, that's a great place to start. The other thing about letting it go and reviewing is when I memorize a chapter, you naturally, when you start memorizing, you think, okay, I'll memorize verse one today, verse one and two tomorrow, one, two and three. Don't do it that way. (laughs) It's harder. What I do is I'll memorize one verse at a time and go through the whole chapter. Then I'll go back And I've forgotten the beginning, but I do a paragraph at a time. And then I go back and do the whole chapter. And so part of the thing is, you know, when I say what I've memorized, I don't try to keep it all at the tip of my tongue Mm -hmm. all the time. But to get in into long-term memory, forgetting about it and then going back and reviewing actually seems to work better than trying to keep it all there. And I do figure once it's in there, the Holy Spirit has, has access. access. Yeah. Okay, we're ending James today. So can I get you to try to recite James 5 for us? Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Be patient, then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Bonnie, thank you so much. That was awesome. Thank you. Okay, I want to invite the men to come up now, if they would, the guys that have preached for us this summer. It's been awesome hearing you guys, hearing a variety of folks communicate this summer. It's been like a fine soup, I think. It's been like ratatouille this summer, so it's been awesome. Thanks, men. It was a privilege with you all, I want to say publicly, we met three or four times before the summer and just sat around a table and discussed James, and it was awesome. It was rich for me. Those times were a significant part of my comments here on Sunday morning, and it was rich. I want to just conclude our series with a couple of minutes of looking at the one passage that we didn't talk about so far this summer, and it was the next-to-last section in James. So Sandy just recited it for us. It's, Be patient, then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of mercy and compassion. Above all, my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Any thoughts? Yeah, for me, uh, I, I like the, in verse 7, it talks about, uses two different words. So it uses weights and patient. A lot of times I think we confuse the two or use the two words interchangeably. But here what I see is that the farmer waits for the fruit and for the yielding of the, what the land is going to produce and is patiently, actively, in an action way, waits for what God is going to deliver. Because James then again uses patient. 
in terms of saying stand firm because you know God's going to deliver. So be patient for what you know, but don't sit and wait. You shouldn't wait for the for the fruit to come of it. But the patience is in the action and waiting for what you know is assured, and that's the coming of God. You know, I guess for me, one of the things that comes out is this uh, this reference of uh, the last days and the laying up of our treasure. I'm going to uh, interrupt you real quick, Bill, and just let you know, for those of you who are kind of new to this and the, this part of your journey, I want to let you know that James does mean exactly what he says. It's been Christian belief from the beginning that uh, history doesn't run in a circle. It runs in a straight line. And God will eventually deal with human history in a cataclysmic way. When Jesus came, it was part of his teaching that he would at some point come again and history as we know it would be wrapped up to a point and a new section of human interaction with one another and with God would begin. You've heard the term second coming of Christ. That is exactly what we believe and it's what James references here. He kind of points them toward that. Okay, so go ahead, Bill. So the first thing that I look at is just the incredible practicality of these verses. I'm reminded immediately of a moth-eaten suit I had just purchased right before we had moved to Texas to go to school there. And it was kind of like the last major purchase before we knew we were going to be broke for a while. And uh, so we bought this really nice suit because you were required to wear a suit for who knows what reason while in school because we all know we study better when we're hot and stuffy, especially in Texas. And so I purchased this suit. We, we sealed it up in a box and we brought it there. So this is a suit. I don't think I'd ever even worn it. And we got there and apparently some moths have gotten into the box and ate holes through this new... Is that your holy suit? Yes, <laughs> yes. Nice. Man, not encourage so, um, that. Wow, I just don't know if I can recover. That was my holy suit. Oh, no, no. <laughs> so I think of that, and of course, uh, in business, I think of, you know, I, I've actually had those thoughts of, oh my goodness, are the workers that uh, I pay in my business, are they crying out? Are they crying out to God of, hey, this guy's not being fair? Uh, this guy's not paying wages. So I just think of the practicality of these verses and uh, just how sobering they are and, and how real they are for my own life. And I'm not normally one to jump straight to the application of these verses. As uh, I think these guys will say, I, I normally like to slow down, but the practicality of these verses just jump out. I want to say, I don't want to steal time if any of y'all have comments that you want to make, but another thing that I'm reminded of, clearly he's speaking to some people who were experiencing trouble and hardship. And he's telling them, hang on, because God's in charge, and he's ultimately going to bring to rights those things that are wrong. And I can't help, honestly, you guys, but think of our brothers and sisters today who are in parts of the world and are facing huge difficulty. They're losing their lives. And I just want to remind you to be in prayer about those who share our faith and... Their lives are, are being sorely tested today, so just a little word. thought that occurs to me, I mean, he says be patient. That's not an area that I'm particularly good at. And the only thing that I grow kind of year after year is tomatoes. I got a small tomato bed, and I was 
frustrated because I kind of planted them late this year, and then it took like six or eight weeks to get from a little you know seedling that you stick in there to actually edible tomatoes, and that seemed like way too long. I mean, you can go to the store and get them right away. The idea of putting them in the ground and coming back two days later and going like, these stupid tomato plants, they're not bearing fruit. I'm getting rid of waste of money. Or, you know, I'm going to put seeds in the ground and then come back a week later and dig them back up and see if there's any, you know. I mean, that's just stupid. But that's how we act spiritually, you know, with God. It's like, God, would you please help me to grow? And then the next day, like, well, okay, where's all the fruit? I mean, that's not even how it works for vegetables. <laughs> and, like, you know vegetables are smarter than me, basically. You know what's great about that, though, Alex? What's great about that is the analogy that he peels back here. And can't you see James having spent half of his life, probably with his older brother Jesus, sitting in the town square listening to farmers yeah. talk about, this is where this kind of analogy comes from. And these were families and people who couldn't go to giant and grab they had to be patient they knew what patience was their lives depended on the early and the late rains and so they were patiently waiting for this to bear fruit and he's encouraging us to lean in to god with that level of intensity that we don't there's not another plan this is it and we're waiting on you to to come bring fruit through our lives. And James even takes it a little further in that he, um, he sets the standard or the bar where he says we give great honor to those who endure for suffering, and he gives examples for that. Mm-hmm. So what he's talking about is a discipline that goes in line with that patience and not just sitting around doing anything. You've got to be able to have certain disciplines in, in place, knowing that when suffering kicks in, your emotions... Which it's going to. It's going to, and your emotions are going to kick in as well, too. And because of that, you, you need a track to run on. So he's able to give us this track and then gives us a measure, um, you know, a standard to look after. I really like that about that. It helps to keep it practical as well as pointed. Also, it seems like he's looping back to chapter one. You talked about, you know, count it joy when you go through these tough yeah. times. And it, it seems like, hey, just a quick recap. Uh, you know, just want to remind you guys, remember. Uses the same word. He mm-hmm. uses the persevere idea. John, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about, I don't want to put you on the spot, but... Uh, oh, you just did? Yeah, yes. Sure, go for it. A couple of, couple of weeks ago, you talked, I thought, eloquently, and I think you're right. I think that first paragraph is addressed to maybe people outside of this group who were oppressing them, perhaps. But you talked to us as Northern Virginians about the dangers of money and the trap that it can be for us. I mean, you can give a recap, but you don't have to, because I don't usually remember what I say a couple of weeks later. But how is this connected to what we've just heard about? You know what I'm asking? So this call for patience, face of suffering, why does that leap to James's mind after this rebuke of people who are wealthy and persecuting perhaps the, the Christians? Yeah, what's happening here, uh, it seems the whole book is underneath this umbrella of the the Christians looking like they have the short end of the stick and because of that they had really it had affected their lifestyle so what I'm trying to get at in my sermon is James is looking at you know this group of people these are the oppressors and I wanted to hold that up as a mirror for us and see what about us you know how does having money having means affect us in ways that we may not be aware of what James is getting at in that next passage that we just talked about is you may not be able to stop the oppression, 
that you're under. So how do you react to it? What's the right way to address it in yourselves? And what really comes at me in this passage is the whole idea of being patient, of having to wait. And I think any of us that have, have been in the whole God thing for a while, you know, God's timetable is totally different than ours. And throughout the ages, his people have been called to wait for things. And it's, it's difficult. It's really hard. But that's the call that James's readers have, and it's a call that we have too. There's a crazy context here that if we look at beyond just the immediate, you know, our family's doing well, therefore, what are the implications of our wealth? And you actually move it to even broader. You can also see this, uh, just like the workers would cry out, what do other countries think of us? You know, I, I had a chance to visit a friend in Cameroon, or we actually traveled together to Cameroon. And I asked one of the guys, I said, what's the first thing you think of? When you see someone like me, he says, well, I'll tell you, I see a white man, and I think, rich. And I look around, and these are guys that, in order to entertain themselves, their kids, they're spinning a rubber tire. They're rolling it along, trying to see how long they can keep a tire going. They didn't have a lot of toys, and I just wonder, you know, what kind of crying out they would do. So I just think also of this broader concept of the, the treasure or the riches that we have and how does that affect not only us on a local scale but a much bigger scale. Okay, I'm going to move us on to some of the questions that people have sent in and I'm going to skip some of the questions in the interest of time. But Dean, I did want to ask this of you and give you one more chance at us and with us. You know, it's interesting. We didn't do this on purpose, but it's interesting that you are an African-American man in a largely white congregation, and you preach from a passage about favoritism. Do you experience that here at Gateway? If so, how? And if not, then how do you see that passage addressing a congregation like Gateway? And you, you hit it when you preach to us, but hit it again. So uh, how do you see that? I mean, I mean, in terms of that prejudice, that type of thing, I don't believe I've ever experienced that here at Gateway. I don't think for a guy like me it would have registered anyway if it, if it did. And that's just mainly because of the way I grew up. So um, there are certain things. If you're going to be that antagonistic against me, I, I'm glad because then you give me the reason to say, okay, I, I can stay away from you. I'm not, not going to bother with you. But I, I don't think as a whole I've actually ever experienced that here at Gateway. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the race thing doesn't bother me. I mean, I believe that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's how I live. And so I, I don't have a problem. I don't see this as a white congregation. These are my brothers and sisters who we come together and we worship God. Right? Amen. So, um, that's just me. Um, so since I don't, I mean, the, the passage spoke more to me about being careful not to do that to others. Mm. So I think when we're aware of that and remembering that we're ambassadors for Christ, it helps us to stay focused. So, I loved your homework assignment at the end of uh, Dean's message this summer. Dean gave us a homework assignment. We'll be checking on you as you leave. He assigned us the task of taking someone out to lunch who's really different and just getting to know them. So that assignment still stands for those of you who haven't had an opportunity to do so. And he mentioned several specifics. You know, someone who has a different sexual persuasion or someone who has a different political persuasion. Someone who's really different than you and thinks very differently than you. And take them out to lunch and listen and hear their story. Kevin, 
This is a question from uh, somebody else in the congregation. It's partly aimed at a passage you preached. Life is good, but it takes all my time and energy just to keep up. Anybody relate to that? How do I, or how do we, make time and space for faith to work? And then, I didn't understand exactly how this was the same question, but they sensed that it was. How do I let go? Can I speak to Dean's point real quick? So the homework that Dean gave to take out somebody different, I didn't get any invites. <laughs> and looking up to these fine elder gentlemen, I'm, I'm quite different. So I would expect a dinner. You know, uh, I was going to say, one of the questions was, how did you come up with the title, Faith That Works? And I was going to say, actually, Kevin came up with that title, Faith That Works. And I thought it was a perfect summary of the message of James. I later found out that someone had a book slash commentary on James called Faith That Works. And I thought they probably had a whole group of creative people sitting around, you know, figuring out that title on their staff. And I thought that works perfectly because Kevin eats like a group. So anyway, Kevin, go ahead. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I mean, you tossed it out to me. I got you. I got you. All right. So with keeping up, so I think generally when we hear that, a question like that, keeping up, I think the general consensus is to say, oh, we shouldn't be keeping up. On the contrary, if we have a faith that works, we need to keep up. But when I preached on chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, James had talked about some infighting that had happened and that the cause of that was selfish desires. And to submit those to God. We talked about submission to God. And when we think about it, we can't submit that from which we don't have. So we already know we have selfish desires, but the mistake we do is we try to get rid of those selfish desires, which can never happen. So instead of doing that, understand that you do have them, but to submit them, to place God's desires above yours. And in that saying then, most people would say, don't keep up. I say, do keep up, but keep up with God and not with the world, which is what it later talks about. Because if we keep up with the world, it's about repetition. And you get exhausted and all these things, right? You try to keep up with the Joneses. But we keep up with God, it's about rehabilitation. And it's getting better, and it's a progression and a direction towards God. For those of us that have a relationship with God, you know that on a daily basis, right, if we follow God, there is nothing but chaos in your life. Because you're trying to keep up with where he takes you, just as Monica shared earlier. And if you're doing that, it's a rehabilitation and this well-roundedness about who we are as Christians and as disciples and not about being copycats in a world that's full of copycats, replicators. Alex, this is a question from the congregation that could use your immense wisdom. Why are trials so heavily tied to faith? Can true faith exist without trials? I would say probably no. I mean, I think you talked about that in the first chapter, the idea that a kid can read a book you know, and learn, and we feel like they're being smart, but then they take a test. And it's an examination not to show how little they don't know. It's an opportunity for them to show what they've learned and their command of the material. And, you know, if our kid comes home and says, my grade this year was acceptable, it's like, what do you mean? What, was it an A, a B, a C, what? You know, we're cognitive of the fact that we want our kids to do well on exams. We want them to learn the material to master it. I think it's the same sort of thing. I mean, your faith, you can't own it. You can't apply it well absent some sort of examination, some sort of opportunity. It's like you're running. I I know nothing about this, but let's say you wanted to learn to run long distances. Well, if you're not tracking how long you're running or how far you're running, how do you know if you're getting any better? And so I, I think God uses these things. It's like a coach saying, okay, 
you've run that distance now for a month and a half. I want you to do some hills because I want you to develop, you know, some other sets of muscles. I want you to develop endurance. And so I'm going to give you a different sort of challenge. I think that's kind of the idea here is that God uses those to grow our faith. Bill, from your sermon, I was wondering how your mail delivery is going. Um, <laughs> teasing. Okay, this came as a question from the congregation. What does the book of James... He didn't James... really want me to answer that question. <laughs> we haven't received mail in years. <laughs> uh, for those of you who aren't here, Bill had a run-in with his uh, mail delivery person. What does the book of James mean when it talks about salt water and fresh water flowing from the same spring? So this is coming from uh, James chapter 3. And one of the things that James does in this section of scripture is he does this bizarre thing of personifying the tongue and uh, making the tongue this crazy evil thing. The illustrations, uh, he then moves on to, you know, how evil the tongue is. He moves on to these illustrations of, you know, blessing and cursing and saying they, they shouldn't come if, if we're true believers. How does this work? And so I think the illustrations he gives of, Fresh and saltwater springs, uh, they don't exist together. You don't see that coming together. You wouldn't go uh, to a fig tree to get olives or expect figs from a grapevine. They're all just illustrations of how unnatural it is for these two things to exist together. And for us as Christians, his point is, you're a Christian, right? Well, then blessings should be coming out of your mouth, not cursings. You shouldn't be saying things to your male lady that are going to come back and haunt you on stage. (laughs) Alex, I don't have the chart, but in your sermon, you talked about two kinds of wisdom. So what does it look like in real life to be on the side of godly wisdom? When you put your shoes on and you go to work, what does it look like to be on the side of godly wisdom? I had a great illustration of this like the week after I preached that sermon. A young person who... My kids know he's a young adult and didn't hear the sermon, so he came by this through some other means than me preaching. But he was facing a decision that, on the one hand, kind of a gamble, young adult, you know, it's a good time to take risks, and it potentially could have led to what everybody in his field, like, dreams of, you know. So it was a long shot, but if he took this gamble and everything played out just right, there could be fame, fortune, and success, and all that he really kind of has been looking towards. Or he could look at it and kind of take the slow and steady and more God-honoring approach, and it probably wasn't going to lead directly to fame and fortune. You know, it would be a much different approach. And my daughter was talking to him, and he pulled out his phone, and he's messing with his phone, and it's like, what? You know, we've been talking about something here. What are you looking at? And he said, "Uh, James 3, I'm just trying to look at this, you know, not from a selfish, what makes me look good, what builds me up, what's hollow, flashy. You know, I want to look at this from a substantive God-honoring perspective. And that's just a a great way of of thinking about things that, you know, when we look at it from God's perspective, we're going to have a much better foundation, a much better long-term perspective on things. Let's take the last pointed question for you, John. John, you talked pointedly about money. Clearly, this is a difficult issue for many of us. So how do you apply this in your own life and with your family? I was hoping you would skip me on this, actually. (laughs) Yeah, in some ways, I think I'm the least qualified to talk about money because as Lisa, my wife, and I were talking about, she said, well, John, you do two things with money. 
you earn it and you spend it. <laughs> and everything in between, she does, basically. <laughs> so how does this work out in our family? A few things. One is we try not to get into the trap of if we just have a little more. We try, and that's a hard thing, because uh, I think like a lot of people, you know, sometimes the ends don't meet at the end of the month, and we have more debt than we want or we should have. But we really try to fight that mindset. If we just had a little bit more money, things would be easier, things would be smoother. Also, major decisions, we try not to make them based on money. For example, you know, decisions we made years ago of, hey, do we expand the family? Financially, no, but <laughs> based on what we think God wants, yes, and let's go for it. And also decisions like, do we give to the church? You know, financially speaking, no. <laughs> but faith speaking and what's right, yes. Believe me, I'm not the guy to come to for, you know, money advice. You know, a lot of people here are more qualified than I am for that. But those are some things that we try to keep at the forefront. I want to tell you one of the questions that we're not going to answer today in the interest of time, but we'll try to revisit it another time. And I'm tossing it out there to get your gray matter going. I'd love for you to noodle on this in your own heart and mind and also with one another. But someone asked the question, I thought it was a great one. Someone asked, we referenced this last week, and someone asked the question, you know, they're assuming that we believe God actually heals people. And we do. So why does God heal some but not many others? We're not going to answer that. We got some great kind of general toss-out questions, but I'm going to skip those and go to the last one, man. So I'd love for at least two or three of you to weigh in on this before we end. Personally, what hit you the hardest out of this series? Where is your homework? What do you need to work on from what we've talked about this summer? The themes that James has hit. What knocks you out and brings you to the point of saying, I need to do some work here? Sandy, when I was a kid, a verse that grabbed me from James, and I just you know, have that snippet, is be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And that is just not who I am. I've known that verse for a long time as one of many, this time through James, where it's like, gosh, seriously, when are you going to start working on that? For me, I go back to the chapter 4 where I, where I was able to, to read through, and uh, it, it keeps coming back for me the whole part about being friends with the world or friends with God, and it uses enmity, you know, in, in the passage, and hate, I mean, it's, it's a strong word, right? We know how strong hate is, and yet it says it, that uh, friendship with the world means hate against God, and uh, there couldn't be a more poignant time right now for our country, for the world, and the church than right now, when we're put, pitted against being friends and friendly with the world and or with God, and where do our allegiance lie? And so uh, then he finishes up that verse by saying, you know, God approaches the proud, favors the humble. And when we're talked about when we're proud, it's us first. When we're humble, it's others first. And so it's, it's just very clean cut for me. And so when I keep coming to that, it's clean cut, and yet it's something that's daily, and I have to keep on the grind in terms of keeping that at the forefront. Something that doesn't always happen to me when I'm going through Scripture, but happened to me when we were studying James is something that completely changed my lens for the whole book. And it was something that I could have probably read a hundred times and it not had any impact, but it's the greeting to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or the diaspora. And this idea that it's 
the whole book is speaking to people in a setting that goes counter to everything they think the world should look like if God is at work. We've been scattered. We've lost our we, homes. We've lost we're, we're our homes. Another culture. Yeah, we live in a culture that is largely anti-God. This doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. comes back to the healing question and, to, and understanding, well, you know, all I can do is, you know, make money and spend it. So I'm going to be happy doing that. I can't live the way you wanted us to live this godly life because we live under a government that doesn't fear God. And so for them to think that way and the book to be addressed to them really opened up my eyes to, he's not just giving a bunch of practical advice, he's giving a lot of practical advice to people that are living in a culture that they feel like is totally anti-God or is anti what they need to live. Uh, That was ground-shaking for me. Along with that, I thought that the simplicity of James was what was stunning to me. Because he really comes right up to the line of condemning you, but he's warning you, and it says, stop. This is what you're doing. Stop. And he says, it's an easy way to change this, but we try and make excuses and all that. You know, and I think that's what gets me when I start to, when as I'm living things out. And I think the way James puts it and the way he simply puts it, it forces me not only to check myself, but the way I deal with other people as well, too. Because I know for me, I grew up in a family where my dad was real hard and he would get on you if you did something wrong and so for me I've had to learn how to back away from that because there's a simple thing well you're doing something wrong stop but I'm not just going to tell you to stop here's how you do it I'm going to help you I'm going to instruct you and by the way I can be there with you and walk you through it I think that was a powerful lesson for me especially as we have a child that's away because I know how she is and you know my first instinct is to jump on her but We've had a lot of exercise now to kind of bite the lip and kind of work through this thing for her to warn her, but not to condemn her. Dean, I agree for me too, that observation. And that makes me think, I can't remember which one of y'all said this, but at some point somebody made the observation, the old phrase, practice makes perfect. And when we practice disobedience, we get perfect at it. And that's why James's word was so striking to me over and over again. It seems like James is just saying, okay, this, don't do it. But, you know, here is the alternative. And it's not easy, but it's not complicated. Just do it. Okay, faith that works. If you didn't get a program, grab one outside. There are a couple of questions, homework questions for you. And the question is, what's the toughest part for you? What's the application part for you? When you put uh, put shoes on and you put this to work, where is the place where you need to take action? What's the toughest part for you? And let's take that to God. So right now, what's the toughest part for you? Those of you who've been here with us this summer, you've heard a lot of James's practical advice about living out the royal law and not judging other people, not making your assessments of other people, because you're going to come under that assessment. Watch your tongue. Watch what you say. The tongue can be a powerful instrument for blessing. It can also be a powerful instrument for for cursing. You get into all kinds of conflict and you blame it on one another 
when in reality it's your selfish desires for all of us. That's what got us here. Our selfish desires got us into these conflicts. So stop that. Submit yourselves to God. Put God's desires above your selfish desires, no matter what they are, no matter how important they seem to you, they're going to get you in a bad place. We began this whole series by saying, you're not really fully in control of your own lives, and you know it. You know circumstances are out of your control, but you are in control of your perspective. And so you can look at trial as an opportunity to learn and to grow. You can look at difficulty as a blessing, knowing that those who persevere will be blessed and they'll be refined and they'll grow. Or you can become bitter and you can blame God and it will not go well for you. The way you think about money, stop it. The way you think about your time and your energy, stop it. And let's give it to Him. So what part of this is the most difficult for you? Where do you need the work? You know, one of the observations I have to make before we end, we've made it a number of times. Somebody actually asked the question, how do we know this book was written by Jesus' brother James? And I dealt with that a little bit the, the first week that we talked about it. I don't want to spend much time on that. There is debate about it. But the majority of scholars across all kinds of disciplines are agreed that it was the, James, the brother of Jesus, Number one, because this book speaks with a, a kind of authority that would not have been accepted by the church, and this book would not have become widespread had it not been someone who earned that kind of authority. And that only leaves a couple of options, and James the Apostle of Jesus, and of course if the early church were making this up, they would have probably assigned it to James the Apostle of Jesus. He had a little more gravitas even than James the brother of Jesus. But James the apostle of Jesus certainly died too early for this book to have been ascribed to him. And some of the things that are said in this book ring very true with Luke's picture of James the brother of Jesus. And James the brother of Jesus was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem from which the people were scattered like Bill was talking about. And so it makes perfect sense for James, the brother of Jesus, to have written a pastoral letter to these people who are scattered. And we've alluded a number of times over the course of the summer about how striking it is that Jesus' brother (laughs) writes this book about faith and about his own brother and calls him Lord. And before we leave today, we have to acknowledge that that's what we believe. We believe he's the Lord and the Christ. And one day he will come again and reign. And all that's wrong, he will bring to rights. Let's pray. Father, I can't help but think of the the guy who met Jesus and came to ask Jesus for healing and said, I believe, Lord, but help me in my unbelief. And many of us today are in that spot, Lord. So we ask you to help us with our unbelief. And God, most of all, we ask this fall, this week, that you would help us put tennis shoes on our faith and put it to work. We thank you so much for, I think of the testimonies that we heard a few weeks ago at at baptism. Expressions of really transformed lives. And your work is speaking into their lives. Father, I think of Greg's testimony from a couple of weeks ago and how you've just turned his life around. 
And because of his experience with you, he is in North Africa working to share your love with people. We think of Monica's story this morning, Lord, and how you have put shoes on her faith. Father, I pray in the strong name of our older brother Jesus that you would put shoes on our faith, that you would put us to work. Those of us, Lord, who have not yet found our place, our calling, what's next for us, I pray that you would be speaking and that we would listen. Father, for those of us who have a sense from you about what's next for us, I pray that you would help us to be diligent in moving toward it. And in all of it, that we trust you and that we would be patient, knowing that you're coming again. Uh, Lord, I pray for what you've said and what you've done this morning, that you will seal it in our hearts and protect it. And we pray all of that in the strong name of Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, go in peace. Remember the three-minute rule today, it's two minutes. You have two minutes to speak to someone that you don't know well and ask them how they're doing.